Section 10 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Beth Thomas. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 6, by various authors. Section 10. Jane Eyre's Wedding Day. From Jane Eyre. By Charlotte Bronte. Sophie came at seven to dress me. She was very long indeed in accomplishing her task, so long that Mr. Rochester, grown, I suppose, impatient of my delay, sent up to ask why I did not come. She was just fastening my veil, the plain square of blonde after all, to my hair with a brooch. I hurried from under her hands as soon as I could. Stop! she cried in French. Look at yourself in the mirror. You have not taken one peep. So I turned at the door. I saw a robed and veiled figure, so unlike my usual self, that it seemed almost the image of a stranger. Jane! called a voice, and I hastened down. I was received at the foot of the stairs by Mr. Rochester. Lingerer, he said, my brain is on fire with impatience, and you tarry so long. He took me into the dining-room, surveyed me keenly all over, pronounced me fair as a lily, and not only the pride of his life, but the desire of his eyes. And then, telling me he would give me but ten minutes to eat some breakfast, he rang the bell. One of his lately hired servants, a footman, answered it. "'Is John getting the carriage ready?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Is the luggage brought down?' "'They are bringing it down, sir.' "'Go you to the church. See if Mr. Wood—' the clergyman, and the clerk are there. Return and tell me. The church, as the reader knows, was but just beyond the gates. The footman soon returned. Mr. Wood is in the vestry, sir, putting on his surplice. And the carriage? The horses are harnessing. We shall not want it to go to church, but it must be ready the moment we return. All the boxes and luggage arranged and strapped on, and the coachman in his seat. Yes, sir. Jane, are you ready? I rose. There were no groomsmen, no bridesmaids, no relatives to wait for or marshal, none but Mr. Rochester and I. Mrs. Fairfax stood in the hall as we passed. I would fain have spoken to her, but my hand was held by a grasp of iron. I was hurried along by a stride I could hardly follow, and to look at Mr. Rochester's face was to feel that not a second of delay would be tolerated for any purpose. I wondered what other bridegroom ever looked as he did so bent up to a purpose, so grimly resolute, or who, under such steadfast brows, ever revealed such flaming and flashing eyes. I know not whether the day was fair or foul. In descending the drive I gazed neither on sky nor earth. My heart was with my eyes, and both seemed migrated into Mr. Rochester's frame. I wanted to see the invisible thing on which, as we went along, he appeared to fasten a glance fierce and fell. I wanted to feel the thoughts whose force he seemed breasting and resisting. At the churchyard wicket he stopped. He discovered I was quite out of breath. "'Am I cruel in my love?' he said. "'Delay an instant. Lean on me, Jane. And now I can recall the picture of the grey old house of God rising calm before me, of a rook wheeling around the steeple, of a ruddy morning sky beyond. I remember something, too, of the green grave mounds, and I have not forgotten, either, two figures of strangers, straying among the low hillocks, and reading the mementos graven on the few mossy headstones. 
i noticed them because as they saw us they passed around to the back of the church and i doubted not they were going to enter by the side aisle door and witness the ceremony by mr rochester they were not observed he was earnestly looking at my face from which the blood had i dare say momentarily fled for i felt my forehead dewy and my cheeks and lips cold when i rallied which i soon did he walked gently with me up the path to the porch we entered the humble and quiet temple the priest waited in his white surplice at the lowly altar the clerk beside him all was still two shadows only moved in a remote corner my conjecture had been correct the strangers had slipped in before us and they now stood by the vault of the rochesters their backs toward us viewing through the rails the old time-stained marble tomb where a kneeling angel guarded the remains of the dame de rochester slain at marston moor in the time of the civil wars and of elizabeth his wife our place was taken at the communion rails hearing a cautious step behind me i glanced over my shoulder one of the strangers a gentleman evidently was advancing up the chancel the service began the explanation of the intent of matrimony was gone through and then the clergyman came a step further forward and bending slightly towards mr rochester went on i require and charge you both as ye will answer at the dreadful day of judgment when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed that if either of you know any impediment why ye may not lawfully be joined together in matrimony ye do now confess it for be ye well assured that so many as are coupled together otherwise than god's word doth allow are not joined together by god neither is their matrimony lawful he paused as the custom is when is the pause after that sentence ever broken by reply not perhaps once in a hundred years and the clergyman who had not lifted his eyes from his book and had held his breath but for a moment was proceeding his hand was already stretched toward mr rochester as his lips unclosed to ask wilt thou have this woman for thy wedded wife when a distinct and near voice said the marriage cannot go on i declare the existence of an impediment the clergyman looked up at the speaker and stood mute the clerk did the same mr rochester moved slightly as if an earthquake had rolled under his feet taking a firmer footing and not turning his head or eyes he said proceed profound silence fell when he had uttered that word with deep but low intonation presently mr wood said i cannot proceed without some investigation into what has been asserted and evidence of its truth or falsehood the ceremony is quite broken off subjoined the voice behind us i am in a condition to prove my allegation an insuperable impediment to this marriage exists mr rochester heard but heeded not he stood stubborn and rigid making no movement but to possess himself of my hand what a hot and strong grasp he had and how like quarried marble was his firm pale massive front at this moment how his eye shone still watchful and yet wild beneath mr wood seemed at a loss what is the nature of the impediment he asked perhaps it may be got over explained away hardly was the answer i have called it insuperable and i speak advisedly the speaker came forward and leaned on the rails he continued uttering each word distinctly calmly steadily but not loudly it simply consists in the existence of a previous marriage mr rochester has a wife now living 
my nerves vibrated to those low-spoken words as they had never vibrated to thunder my blood felt their subtle violence as it had never felt frost or fire but i was collected and in no danger of swooning i looked at mr rochester i made him look at me his whole face was colourless rock his eye was both spark and flint he disavowed nothing he seemed as if he would defy all things without speaking without smiling without seeming to recognise in me a human being he only twined my waist with his arm and riveted me to his side who are you he asked of the intruder my name is briggs a solicitor of <clears throat> street london and you would thrust on me a wife i would remind you of your lady's existence sir which the law recognises if you do not favour me with an account of her with her name her parentage her place of abode certainly mr briggs calmly took a paper from his pocket and read out in an official sort of nasal voice i affirm and can prove that on the twentieth of october a d a date of fifteen years back edward fairfax rochester of thornfield hall in the county of <coughs> and of ferndean manor in <clears throat> shire england was married to my sister bertha antoinetta mason daughter of jonas mason merchant and of antoinetta his wife a creole at <clears throat> church spanish town jamaica the record of the marriage will be found in the register of that church a copy of it is now in my possession signed richard mason that if a genuine document may prove that i have been married but it does not prove that the woman mentioned therein as my wife is still living she was living three months ago returned the lawyer how do you know i have a witness to the fact whose testimony even you sir will scarcely controvert produce him or go to hell i will produce him first he is on the spot mr mason have the goodness to step forward mr rochester on hearing the name set his teeth he experienced too a sort of strong convulsive quiver near to him as i was i felt the spasmodic movement of fury or despair run through his frame the second stranger who had hitherto lingered in the background now drew near a pale face looked over the solicitor's shoulder yes it was mason himself mr rochester turned and glared at him his eye as i have often said was a black eye it had now a tawny nay a bloody light in its gloom and his face flushed olive cheek and hueless forehead received a glow as from spreading ascending heart-fire and he stirred lifted his strong arm he could have struck mason dashed him on the church floor shocked by ruthless blow the breath from his body but mason shrank away and cried faintly good god contempt fell cool on mr rochester his passion died as if a blight had shrivelled it up he only asked what have you to say an inaudible reply escaped mason's white lips the devil is in it if you cannot answer distinctly i again demand what have you to say sir sir interrupted the clergyman do not forget you are in a sacred place then addressing mason he inquired gently are you aware sir whether or not this gentleman's wife is still living courage urged the lawyer speak out she is now living at thornfield hall said mason in more articulate tones i saw her there last april i am her brother at thornfield hall ejaculated the clergyman impossible i am an old resident in this neighbourhood sir and i never heard of a mrs rochester at thornfield hall 
I saw a grim smile contort Mr. Rochester's lip, and he muttered, No, by God, I took care that none should hear of it, or of her under that name. He mused. For ten minutes he held counsel with himself. He formed his resolve and announced it. Enough. All shall bolt out at once, like a bullet from the barrel. Wood, close your book and take off your surplus. John Green, to the clerk. Leave the church. There'll be no wedding to-day. The man obeyed. Mr. Rochester continued hardily and recklessly. Bigamy is an ugly word. I meant, however, to be a bigamist. But fate has outmanoeuvred me, or providence has checked me, perhaps the last. I am little better than a devil at this moment, and as my pastor there would tell me, deserve no doubt the sternest judgments of God, even to the quenchless fire and the deathless worm. Gentlemen, my plan is broken up. What this lawyer and his clients say is true. I have been married, and the woman to whom I was married lives. You say you have never heard of a Mrs. Rochester at the house up yonder, Wood, but I dare say that you have many a time inclined your ear to gossip about the mysterious lunatic kept there under watch and ward. Some have whispered to you that she is my bastard half-sister, some my cast-off mistress. I now inform you that she is my wife, whom I married fifteen years ago, Bertha Mason by name, sister of this resolute personage who is now, with his quivering limbs and white cheeks, showing you what a stout heart men may bear. Cheer up, Dick. Never fear me. I'd almost as soon strike a woman as you. Bertha Mason is mad, and she came of a mad family, idiots and maniacs, through three generations. Her mother, the Creole, was both a mad woman and a drunkard, as I found out after I had wed the daughter, for they were silent on family secrets before. Bertha, like a dutiful child, copied her parent in both points. I had a charming partner, pure, wise, modest. You can fancy I was a happy man. I went through rich scenes. Oh, my experience has been heavenly, if you only knew it. But I owe you no further explanation. Briggs, Wood, Mason, I invite you all to come up to the house and visit Mrs. Poole's patient and my wife. You shall see what sort of a being I was cheated into espousing, and judge whether or not I had a right to break the compact and seek sympathy with something at least human. This girl— he continued looking at me, knew no more than you would of the disgusting secret. She thought all was fair and legal, and never dreamed that she was going to be entrapped into a feigned union with a defrauded wretch, already bound to a bad, mad, and imbruted partner. Come, all of you, follow. Still holding me fast, he left the church. The three gentlemen came after. At the front door of the hall we found the carriage. Take it back to the coach-house, John, said Mr. Rochester coolly. It will not be wanted to-day. At our entrance, Mrs. Fairfax, Adele, Sophie, Leah, advanced to meet and greet us. "'To the right about, every soul!' cried the master. "'Away with your congratulations! Who wants them? Not I. They are fifteen years too late.' He passed on and ascended the stairs, still holding my hand, and still beckoning the gentlemen to follow him, which they did. We mounted the first staircase, passed up the gallery, proceeded to the third story. The low black door, opened by Mr. Rochester's master key, admitted us to the tapestried room, with its great bed and its pictorial cabinet. "'You know this place, Mason,' said our guide. "'She bit and stabbed you here.' He lifted the hangings from the wall, uncovered the second door. This, too, he opened. In a room without a window there burned a fire, guarded by a high and strong fender, and a lamp suspended from the ceiling by a chain." Grace Poole bent over the fire, apparently cooking something in a saucepan. 
in the deep shade at the further end of the room a figure ran backward and forward what it was whether beast or human being one could not at first sight tell it grovelled seemingly on all fours it snatched and growled like some strange wild animal but it was covered with clothing and a quantity of grizzled dark hair wild as a mane hid its face and head good morning mrs poole said mr rochester how are you and how is your charge to-day we're tolerable sir i thank you replied grace lifting the boiling mess carefully onto the hob rather snappish but not rageous a fierce cry seemed to give the lie to her favourable report the clothed hyena rose up and stood tall on its hind feet ah sir she sees you exclaimed grace you'd better not stay only a few moments grace you must allow me a few moments take care then sir for god's sake take care the maniac bellowed she parted her shaggy locks from her visage and gazed wildly at her visitors i recognized well that purple face those bloated features mrs poole advanced keep out of the way said mr rochester thrusting her aside she has no knife now i suppose and i'm on my guard one never knows what she has sir she is so cunning and it is not in mortal discretion to fathom her craft we had better leave her whispered mason go to the devil was his brother-in-law's recommendation where cried grace the three gentlemen retreated simultaneously. Mr. Rochester flung me behind him. The lunatic sprang and grappled his throat viciously, and laid her teeth to his cheek. They struggled. She was a big woman, in stature almost equalling her husband, and corpulent besides. She showed virile force in the contest. More than once she almost throttled him, athletic as he was. He could have settled her with a well-planted blow, but he would not strike her. He would only wrestle at last he mastered her arms grace poole gave him a cord and he pinioned them behind her with more rope which was at hand he bound her to a chair the operation was performed amid the fiercest yells and the most convulsive plunges mr rochester then turned to the spectators he looked at them with a smile both acrid and desolate that is my wife said he such is the sole conjugal embrace i am ever to know such are the endearments which are to solace my leisure hours and this is what i wish to have laying his hand on my shoulder this young girl who stands so grave and quiet at the mouth of hell looking collectedly at the gambols of a demon i wanted her just as a change after that fierce ragout wood and briggs look at the difference compare these clear eyes with the red balls yonder this face with that mask this form with that bulk and then judge me priest of the gospel and man of the law and remember with what judgment ye judge ye shall be judged off with you now i must shut up my prize we all withdrew mr rochester stayed a moment behind us to give some further order to grace poole the solicitor addressed me as he descended the stair you madam said he are cleared from all blame your uncle will be glad to hear it if indeed he should still be living when mr mason returns to madeira my uncle what of him do you know him mr mason does mr eyre has been the funchal correspondent of his house for some years when your uncle received your letter intimating the contemplated union between yourself and mr rochester mr mason who was staying at madeira to recruit his health on his way back to jamaica happened to be with him mr eyre mentioned the intelligence for he knew that my client here was acquainted with a gentleman of the name of rochester mr mason astonished and distressed as you may suppose revealed the real state of matters 
your uncle i am sorry to say is now on a sick-bed from which considering the nature of his disease decline and the stage it has reached it is unlikely he will ever rise he could not then hasten to england himself to extricate you from the snare into which you had fallen but he implored mr mason to lose no time in taking steps to prevent the false marriage he referred him to me for assistance i used all dispatch and am thankful i was not too late as you doubtless must be also were i not morally certain that your uncle will be dead ere you reach madeira i would advise you to accompany mr mason back but as it is i think you had better remain in england till you can hear further either from or of mr eyre have we anything else to stay for he inquired of mr mason no no let us be gone was the anxious reply and without waiting to take leave of mr rochester they made their exit at the hall door the clergyman stayed to exchange a few sentences either of admonition or reproof with his haughty parishioner this duty done he too departed i heard him go as i stood at the half-open door of my own room to which i had now withdrawn the house cleared i shut myself in fastened the bolt that none might intrude and proceeded not to weep not to mourn i was yet too calm for that but mechanically to take off the wedding dress and replace it by the stuff gown i had worn yesterday as i thought for the last time i then sat down i felt weak and tired i leaned my arms on a table and my head dropped on them and now i thought till now i had only heard seen moved followed up and down where i was led or dragged watched event rush on event disclosure open beyond disclosure but now i thought the morning had been quiet enough all except the brief scene with the lunatic the transaction in the church had not been noisy there was no explosion of passion no loud altercation no dispute no defiance or challenge no tears no sobs a few words had been spoken a calmly pronounced objection to the marriage made some stern short questions put by mr rochester answers explanations given evidence adduced an open admission of the truth had been uttered by my master then the living proof had been seen the intruders were gone and all was over i was in my own room as usual just myself without obvious change nothing had smitten me or scathed me or maimed me and yet where was the jane eyre of yesterday where was her life where were her prospects jane eyre who had been an ardent expectant woman almost a bride was a cold solitary girl once again her life was pale her prospects were desolate a christmas frost had come at midsummer a white december storm had whirled over june ice glazed the ripe apples drifts crushed the blowing roses on hayfield and cornfield lay a frozen shroud lanes which last night blushed full of flowers to-day were pathless with untrodden snow and the woods which twelve hours since waved leafy and fragrant as groves between the tropics now laid waste wild and white as pine forests in wintry norway my hopes were all dead struck with a subtle doom such as in one night fell on all the first-born in the land of egypt i looked on my cherished wishes yesterday so blooming and glowing they lay stark chill livid corpses that could never revive i looked at my love that feeling which was my master's which he had created it shivered in my heart like a suffering child in a cold cradle sickness and anguish had seized it 
it could not seek mr rochester's arms it could not derive warmth from his breast oh never more could it turn to him for faith was blighted confidence destroyed mr rochester was not to me what he had been for he was not what i had thought him i would not ascribe vice to him i would not say he had betrayed me but the attribute of stainless truth was gone from his idea and from his presence i must go that i perceived well when how whither i could not yet discern but he himself i doubted not would hurry me from thornfield real affection it seemed he could not have for me it had been only fitful passion that was balked he would want me no more i should fear even to cross his path now my view must be hateful to him oh how blind had been my eyes how weak my conduct end of section 10 jane eyre's wedding day